my loves. So it is evening here, but good morning or afternoon or evening to wherever you are when you're listening to this. I'm just going to read through the end of theory. It's the last chapter in the Emtral Horns, The Agony of Eros. We had our podcast, so I will actually link our uh, discussion. I actually got to discuss the Agony of Eros with um, the host of Therapy for Guys, Kiku Autry, and also um, Barry Taylor, and also the translator of the Agony of Eros. Eric Butler, which was pretty amazing. So I got to ask him some translating questions, and it was just really exciting. I'm impressed, super impressed with how much we got through in one hour, just everyone giving their voice. We had a great dynamic and a great back and forth, although I'm sure we could have filled four hours or more talking about it. So I'm just doing the last chapter because it is evening for me. I've had a lovely Sunday. Tomorrow is back to work. I feel as if my new apartment is coming together slowly. And um, yeah, so let's get into it. It starts off with a letter from Heidegger to his wife. In a letter to his wife, Martin Heidegger wrote, The other thing inseparable in a different way from my love for you and from my thinking is difficult to say. I call it Eros, the oldest of the gods, according to Parmenides. The beat of that god's wings moves me every time I take a substantial step in my thinking and venture onto untrodden paths. It moves me, perhaps, more powerfully and uncannily than others when something long intuited is to be led across into the realm of the sayable. And when what has been said must after all be left in solitude for a long time to come. To live up to this purely and yet retain what is ours, to follow the flight and yet return home safely, to accomplish both things as equally essential and pertinent, this is where I fail too easily and then either stray into pure sensuality or try to force the unforceable through sheer work. Without seduction by the atopic other which sparks erotic desire, thinking withers into mere work which always reproduces the same. That makes me think of this great chapter Work by Roshi Ienko Ohara in her book The Most Intimate. She is a Buddhist lesbian, a Zen Buddhist lesbian monk, and she has a chapter called Work, um, One Who Is Not Busy, or something like that. Um, that I always give to my student, or I used to always give to my uh, Composition 1 students just for them to maybe be inspired that their writing in my class could be a sense of intimacy and joy and self-revelation, therapeutic, self-nurturing, 
instead of just a busyness that they have to kind of, they just want to finish. <laughs> so I like when Han here says, mere work. Calculating thought lacks the negativity of atopia. It is work on the positive. No negativity inspires, no negativity inspires disquiet or unrest in it. Heidegger speaks of the sheer or mere work into which thinking degrades when it is not driven by arrows to venture down untrodden paths into the incalculable. Thinking grows more powerful and uncannier when moved by the beating wings of Eros, as it seeks to translate the wordless, atopic other into language. So, right here, just that phrase, untrodden paths, makes me think that one of the elements of an erotic, erotically charged situation, and erotic, I just want to say, has been appropriated by the sexual and if one reads Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic you will see that it is actually so much more than that and doesn't even have to and often and in the way Han is talking about it most often has nothing to do with a sexual. It has to do with the narrative of inspiring desire. It has to do with longing. It has to do with flirtation. It has to do with teasing. It has to do with the mystery and the, um, the sort of cataclysmic transformation that can overcome one in an encounter or connection or reflection, imagination, fantasy. So I think on the one hand, talking about the erotic in this in that way, so Audre Lorde kind of adds more to it, and I'll get to that in a second. Talking about the erotic that way in the way that you can never know completely you can never possess completely and that in that space of non-possession or almost possession in that space of of want and desire um it can be seen as problematic i think because most people think that time or that experience especially like in a relationship or it could even be in a project that one is doing as kind of the beginning and a short-lived temporal kind of part and then the rest of it is just mundane and boring. And uh, it's problematic if someone just kind of is a sensation junkie and kind of... Um, searches and runs after that feeling because it is an amazing feeling of adrenaline and just sensuality and feeling and it sort of doesn't seem to encompass I think for most people the work that relationships take to endure and last and 
so on. Like, I'm thinking of um, Elaine de Botton's um, novels on love, and on, I think it's like on uncertainty of love. Um, how they go through a relationship of ups and downs and it's mundane and it's profane and it's also sacred and he really kind of embraces the the longevity of a relationship but what I like about Audre Lorde's essay and I might do a video on it uh, soon is she talks about how we need to recapture the erotic outside of the bedroom um, and I th- and she says that it has to do with the spiritual it has to do with the political it has to do with our untapped feelings and emotions that yes has some connection to sensuality um, but it it drives us uh, with a creative spark I also think of the movie Amelie where she, you are seeing her experience and practice Eros by walking out into the city barefoot or dipping her hand in a vat of cool, dry beans. Um, it's the feeling of uh, having the ocean, the salty ocean, like run up against your bare flesh when your feet sinking into the warm sand and the sun is coming down on your body so everyone in relationship with other people or not in any situation can experience the erotic and I think that the the word itself I think is very uncomfortable to most people because it's been loaded and appropriated in a very reduced and simplistic way and so we need to detach because Han uh, we need to detach perhaps from this reductive understanding and Han even opposes pornography with the erotic so what pornography is is not the narrative is not the anticipation is not the mystery and the limited view. I feel like I'm gonna sneeze. Okay. Um, been outside almost all afternoon. And it's beautiful. Um, but I think now my allergies are my body's reminding me that I have allergies <laughs> to nature and outside. Calculating data-driven thought utterly lacks the resistance offered by the atopic other. Without eros, thinking is merely repetitive and additive. Likewise, love without eros and the spiritual lift, there you go, it provides, deteriorates into mere sensuality. Sensuality and work belong to the same order, they both lack spirit and desire. So I think he means like, again, mere sensuality. Not long ago, Chris Anderson, the editor-in-chief of Wired, published a provocative article entitled The End of Theory. In it, he claimed that the inconceivably large volumes of data now available have made theoretical models entirely superfluous. 
Quote, today companies like Google, which have grown up in an era of massively abundant data, don't have to settle for wrong models. Indeed, they don't have to settle for models at all. Because theory is, uh, is sort of a, a systematic way of thinking that anticipates being falsified and anticipates having to defend itself or having to encounter other alternative theories. But you don't have to do that if your technology calculates something perfectly. Instead, they analyze data for patterns of affinity or dependency. Hypothetical models of theory are to be replaced with the direct comparison of data. Correlation is more important than causality. Out with every theory of human behavior from linguistics to sociology. Forget taxonomy, ontology, and psychology. Who knows why people do what they do? The point is they do it, and we can track and measure it with unprecedented fidelity. With enough data, the numbers speak for themselves. Anderson's thesis rests on a weak and simplistic conception of theory. Theory offers more than a model or a hypothesis to be proven or disproven by means of experimentation. Strong theories such as Plato's doctrine of ideas or Hegel's phenomenology of spirit are not models that could be replaced by data analysis. They are founded on thinking in the emphatic sense. Theory represents an essential decision that causes the world to appear wholly different, in a wholly different light. So maybe kind of like a paradigm. Theory is a primary primordial decision which determines what counts and what does not, what is or should be, and what does not matter. As highly selective narration, selective narration, it cuts a clearing of differentiation through untrodden terrain. There is no such thing as data-driven thinking. Only calculation is data-driven. The negativity of the incalculable is inscribed in thinking. I'm just thinking, did I add like an extra syllable there? I don't know. As such, it is prior and superordinate to data, which means things given. Indeed, for thought, negativity is pre-existing and prescribed. The theory underlying thinking is a precept, guide, and parameter. It transcends the positivity of given facts and makes them suddenly appear in a new light. This is not romanticism, but the logic of thinking itself. And it has been from the very beginning. Today, the volume of data and information proliferating without end is pulling science away from thought on a massive scale. Information is inherently positive. Data-based positive science, Google science, which amounts to merely balancing out and comparing data, is putting an end to theory of the emphatic sort. It is additive or detective, not narrative or hermeneutic. No narrative tension animates it. As such, it falls apart into mere information. In view of the pullulating mass of information and data, I need to probably look that up, theories are now more necessary than ever. Theories keep things from running together and sprawling. That is, they reduce entropy. Theory clarifies the world before it elucidates it. Consider that theories and ceremonies, i.e. rituals, share an origin. They confer form on the world. They shape the course of things, framing them so that they do not overflow. In contrast, today's massive information is exercising a deformative effect. And this right here is why I kind of think that um, Han, I wouldn't necessarily classify him as a strict postmodernist or postmodernist at all. 
because he likes boundaries, he likes order, he likes form. Massive information massively heightens the entropy of the world. It raises the level of noise. Thinking demands calm. Thinking is an expedition to quietness. The crisis in theory responds to a crisis in literature and art. Michel Tour, the representative of Nouveau Roman in France, sees it as a spiritual crisis. We're not just living in an economic crisis, we're also living in a literary crisis. European literature is threatened. What we're now experiencing in Europe is a crisis of the spirit. When asked how one may recognize as such, Vitor responds, For the last 10 or 20 years, almost nothing has been happening in literature. There's a tide of publications, but an intellectual standstill. The reason is a crisis of communication. The new means of communication are remarkable, but they cause tremendous noise. I always think statements like that are a bit unfair. Um, I think there definitely has have been uh, great stories, great novels that have been published in the last 10, 20, 30 years. Tao Lin's uh, collection of short stories, Bed, is a great example. Great example. Um, what's her name? Maybe Deborah. Wilson, she's a psychologist. She has she has a collection of short stories that are just really compelling. I just I don't know. I think we have amazing philosophical, intellectual minds, literary minds. So I just I just can't agree with that, and I don't know how anyone can make such an overarching statement. Rampant massive information and excess of positivity makes a racket. Today's society of transparency and information has an extremely high noise level. But without negativity, only the same exists. Spirit, which originally meant unrest, owes its spiritedness, its animacy to negativity. So I think what he's trying to say is that we have a world of data and information and algorithms and optimization because that creates something that can be utilized for generating profit, better ads, better apps, etc. And so it's a use value that's being kind of promoted and privileged rather than you know, creativity is a little messier dialogue and discourse, sometimes messier, discursive, creative, chaotic. But it's a productive chaos, not a frenzied chaos that's destructive. And it really reminds me of Heidegger's essays on technology and how, and art, and how he says that we are commodifying everything and making everything even nature into standing reserve and also making ourselves into standing reserve so basically we're becoming um we're becoming too focused on how and when we can use what instead of sort of feeling our way through the human predicament which takes time which is not efficient 
Data-driven positive science produces neither insight nor truth. Information is only cognized, but cognition is not yet recognition, that is, insight. Because of its positivity, it is additive and cumulative. As positivity, information changes nothing and announces nothing. It is utterly inconsequential. In contrast, insight is a negativity. It is exclusive, exquisite, and executive. An insight preceded by experience is capable of shaking up the status quo in its entirety and allowing something wholly other to begin. But excessive cognition prevents recognition from taking place. Our information society is a society of experience. Experiencing is also additive and cumulative. That is what distinguishes it from transformative experience, which often occurs only once. So here is an example of where I think that, so the German is is in parentheses, which I think is really helpful because experiencing is one word in German and transformative experience is another word in German. But here it just sounds like he's saying, in English, it sounds like he should give an adjective to the first experiencing because he gave an adjective to the second one, but he doesn't, and it makes the English sentence very awkward. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Just a, just a. It makes me think about other Bianchi home books that I've um, read where I feel like he's being contradictory because he's using the same word in different ways without acknowledging that, but maybe it's acknowledged just in the German language itself. Thus, information society has no access to the holy other. It lacks eros, which transforms. Sexuality also represents a positive formula for experiencing love. Therefore, it too is additive and cumulative. So, you know, thinking about what's countable and not countable. It's countable um, how many dates you've been on. It's countable how many sexual partners you you have had. But is it countable how many intimate, erotically charged, sensual, powerful experiences that you've had? People usually don't count those you know and they are of different levels of intensity and importance and significance hello everyone sorry i'm back um allergies um so i think that also a reason that you can't really count your these experiences that are so charged and uh, be and, and come from different sources and have different reasons like sometimes you know there are just there's such a variety of possibilities that can happen that you can't count them because new memories are of experiences are always popping up when you and so they you know they might almost seem seem countless 
In Plato's dialogue, Socrates takes the stage as a seducer, beloved, and lover. Because of his singularity, he is called a topos. His speech unfurls as erotic seduction, too. That is why he is compared to the satyr Marcius. As is well known, satyrs and silensoi numbered among the companions of Dionysus. Socrates is said to be more admirable than the flute player Marcius because he seduces and intoxicates by means of words alone. Anyone who listens to him goes wild. Alcipiades says that when he listens to Socrates, his heart beats even more violently than the hearts of people seized by the Corbin's dance. He is wounded by his speeches of wisdom, as if a snake had bitten him. Socrates' discourses bring forth tears. Until now, attention has hardly been paid to the remarkable fact that at the beginning, the very beginning of philosophy and theory, Logos and, and Eros, okay, sorry, at the very beginning of philosophy and theory, Logos and Eros entered into such an intimate relation. Logos is powerless without the force, force of Eros. Alcibiades says that Pericles and other orators, in contrast to Socrates, says nothing that grips or unsettles him. Their words lack the erotic power of seduction. Eros leads and seduces, thinking down untrodden paths through the atopic other. The demonic nature of Socratic discourse derives from the negativity of atopia, yet it does not end in aporia. Counter to tradition, Plato made Poros the father of Eros. Poros means way. Although thinking ventures into, onto uncharted terrain, it does not get lost there. Because of his parentage, Eros shows the way. Philosophy is the translation of Eros into Logos. Heidegger follows Plato's theory of Eros when he remarks that the beat of the god's wing touches him as soon as he makes a substantial step in his thinking and ventures onto untrodden paths. And that's true, like, Heidegger's writing is very winding and discursive. I mean, it leads you to a place, but it has lots of different etymological diversions, let's say, from the beaten path. Eros is called philosophos, the friend of wisdom, in Plato. The philosopher is a friend, a lover. Here, the lover is not an outward personality, an empirical circumstance, but a presence that is intrinsic to thought, a condition of possibility of thought itself, a living category, a transcendental lived reality. Thinking in the strong sense begins with Eros. To be able to think, one must first have been a friend, a lover. So when this says thinking in a strong sense begins with Eros, I often think how, you know, um, writing. When you are trying to write anything, uh, whether it be for publication or in a college class, or something for yourself. People often suggest setting up an environment that is sensual and exp 
and inspiring and putting yourself in a place of feeling and uh, you know I mean different things could be recommended but you know maybe music or candles or a comfy place a sweater a cozy corner of a, a coffee shop um, a nice indulgent drink um, and then in a mindset that is not one of production and efficiency and utilitarianism and and just trying to, to force your way through a thought but you need to be inspired and a lot of people will say well if you are sitting down and you are nothing's coming to you you're just staring at your blank page then then get up take a walk in nature you know become inspired um gather feelings gather emotions gather thoughts thinking with desire for the atopic other. In Wittis philosophy, Deleuze and Guattari extol Eros as the transcendental condition for the possibility of thinking. What does friend mean when it becomes a condition for the exercise of thought? Or rather, are we not talking of the lover? Does not the friend reintroduce into thought a vital relationship with the other that was supposed to have been excluded from pure thought. And that's the end of this chapter and the book, even though I skipped over some chapters as well. I think it would be really interesting. I actually love this chapter because I think it might help me understand Heidegger's lectures on what is called thinking. Because he says thinking is thankfulness it has its origins in thankfulness and gratitude it has its origin in memory and it has its origin in a third one that i can never remember i have to go back to my heidegger but um so how do we do this you know would be the question that sort of remained unanswered for me i think when i finished those lectures how do we do that you know getting into a state of gratitude remembering and then the other one uh tell me in the comments what it was i think maybe the way to understand those elements of what thinking is and to get there is through eros thanks everyone see you next time